Now, as you know, the last month we got together, we, uh, we started uh, <clears throat> what I really call the, the, the doctrinal series. Uh, it's really the meat of the Bible. Uh, if you're going to learn your Bible, this is where you're going to learn it. And um, I told you that God has his own systematic theology of putting the Word of God together so, you know, you can learn it. And uh, it's a thing where if you follow it and you uh, let it build itself, then, you know, it really will help you. I showed you the uh, aspect of like a safety net, how that uh, when you start going through these, each doctrine would represent a line in that net. Once you start going through the multiple of them, uh, you'll find that the, the doctrines come back across again, connected to other subjects, and they overlap each other. And I use the example of it's like a, a net crossing over, and that, you know, it's the safety net of the Bible. It helps you uh, uh, always stay where you can't fall through the cracks because the Bible doctrine is the safety net that keeps you on track. So, uh, you know, we started under, with that understanding. Uh, I talked about the fact that uh, there's um, eight main um, seven series. And, uh, uh, I mean, you could go, I mean, everything in the Bible is built on a number of seven. And we will go probably more than eight. Uh, but at least I want to give you the eight main ones as we come through this section. And, of course, uh, I, I talked about the fact that there's seven mysteries in the Bible. That's where we started last week, and we've got to finish that today. The seven judgments in the Bible, um, seven baptisms in the Bible. You'll find that there's seven resurrections in the Bible. Um, the Bible talks about seven things that we as Christians are not to be ignorant of. Uh, there's seven stages of your spiritual growth, so you can check and see, you know, how you're doing with that. Um, in our Discipleship 2 uh, series, we have the seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. Uh, that's, that's vital. Uh, and then um, the seven seven series, or uh, man being on this earth for 6,000 years and the 7,000 being uh, the millennial rate of Christ. And so those are the ones we're going to focus on. Um, we're going to jump right in today. And we started last week with the seven mysteries. These seven mysteries are given to the church. And uh, the only way to unlock these mysteries is with a King James 1611 authorized version. It's just that, it's just that simple. Uh, we were told, uh, you know, over there in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, I gave you the verse last time, that it says, Let a man so account uh, of us as a minister of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Uh, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Uh, these mysteries are, and I start with these because these are the fundamental, vital, seven vital aspects of the ministry. Everything else we're going to study and everything else we would come through the Bible, in studying the Bible, we'll come back to one of these seven things. You might say that these seven are the, are the seven definitive uh, aspects on which the whole Bible rests. You get these seven down, and uh, the rest of the Bible will come back to rest on, on one of these seven. <clears throat> and that's why it's so, uh, so important. Yet at the same time, notice they're mysteries. 
And I told you how that uh, God has given 12 mysteries to the nation of Israel found in Matthew 12 and 13. Uh, and he's given seven mysteries to the church. And uh, in both cases, um, the heresy that abounds today um, is based on the fact that um, nobody uh, understands these mysteries, nobody's teaching these ministry, mis mysteries, and certainly nobody's being stewards of them. So we find ourselves in a real quandary in Christianity today where, you know, everything is upside down. And um, the people who you're going to run into in life who profess to know the Bible uh, are going to be inadequately uh, deficient when it comes to the Bible. And the problem is that they, their, their level of Christianity, to them, they think they know the Bible. And of course, uh, they're so shallow in it that uh, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And it all comes back that they don't have the foundation uh, in the Bible that, that you get here, uh, that uh, you build on the rest of your life. So last time we talked, we started with number one, which was the virgin birth. And I showed you that mystery and how it connected in. The second one was the uh, indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Uh, out of Colossians 1.27, the virgin birth was out of 1 Timothy 3.16. Now, let me just say this to you. Uh, in my Bible, uh, you know, I, I, I try to make things easy for me. And w what I suggest you do with this is someplace in the front of your Bible or the back of your Bible where you have those note pages, uh, as we go through them, I would, I would put the uh, the seven mysteries. I would just put the virgin birth, 1 Timothy 3.16, indwelling Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 1.27, the Jew and Gentile in one body, the verses I gave you for that, uh, the restoration of the nation of Israel, I gave you that, chapter Romans 9 and Romans 11.25. Uh, put that in your front, uh, just that basic thing. And then what you want to do is you want to go to the first one, which is the virgin birth. At that point in your wide margin Bible, you'll want to, uh, you'll want to put down the information uh, about that, all your references, a short synopsis of what you've got and what you're dealing with. And then you want to, you want to put a little note in there, uh, mystery number two would be Colossians 1.27. You want to clearly be able to go to the first one, go to the second one, and from the second one, go to the third one. And you want to just systematically put those all the way through. Uh, don't use the front of your Bible uh, to put all the information. Put it in at the verse there. And, and what you can do, if you ever have to teach these, instead of remembering all of them, you only got to remember the first one. And then once you get to the first one, and if you can't remember the first one, then you just go to the front of your Bible. And then, um, and then you have the whole system. Then go to the first one, and then you just work your way through it. We're gonna, you want to do that with all of the seven series. And um, you want to have your own systematic theology as you work through how all of that plays together for you. And it will really be an asset to you and really help you. The fourth one, or the third one, last time was the Jew and Gentile in one body. And we talked about that. The fourth one... Uh, was the uh, restoration of the nation of Israel. And that's where we stopped last week, along with the introduction that we had. So I want to finish up the last three, and then we'll move on to 
uh, the next set series. And uh, the fifth one will be uh, the rapture of the church. And uh, for that, we want to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, um, here again, as we get farther away from the Bible uh, as, a, as Christianity, you know, we rejected the Bible uh, back in the uh, late 1800s, and then it's been a process of getting farther from the Bible as every year, generation went on. We're at the place now where... Um, Hardly anybody believes that you have the perfect, absolute Word of God. It's all contained now in a gray mush that nobody really knows anything for sure, but yet they think they know a lot of things. <clears throat> the, rapture, the doctrine of the teaching of the rapture of the church um, was the mainstay of the Baptist church. Um, it was the mainstay all down through church history. What has happened today is the fact that... Um, the neo-evangelical churches have come on the scene. They have bypassed the Baptist churches totally and completely. This is why uh, most Baptist churches are moving into the new evangelical movement called the ecumenical movement. Uh, they do that by taking Baptist off their name and becoming a community church, uh, just whatever. Um, they'll have some silly Bible thing like Grace Church or or faith church, or, you know, worship church at the round table where the devil can't corner or something like that. But they don't have any, any doctrinal significance to their name. And they have uh, come now full circle where they don't, they don't believe much anymore of where, um, where Christianity once was. All of them, pretty much, without exception, reject the rapture of the church. Um, nobody, nobody hardly believes the, the rapture anymore. And of course, the Baptist churches that are still Baptist churches, they still teach it. But all of the churches that, that once were Baptist churches that are now uh, no longer Baptist churches, when they embrace this mindset of neo-evangelicalism, um, it takes away doctrine. And so they all go down that slippery slope of into that gray melting pot of there's nothing know for sure. And this is where you lose the great doctrines of the Bible. And because of that, you know, you have a, a segment of Christianity, a very large part, I would say the mainstay of Christianity today, they think they know a lot about the Bible, but they really don't. And it doesn't take many, it doesn't take much uh, for somebody like you who has a handle on the Bible to point out their inadequacy when it comes to the scriptures. And, um, you know, and today people who believe what we believe, and this is why, you know, you get tagged as a cult. And, you know, to me, that's always been one of the most ridiculously stupid. If it does anything, it shows how woefully uh, stupid they are of any aspect of church history. What you and I believe in this church 125 years ago was the mainstay of Christianity. 
there were no new evangelical churches. Um, the, if you belong or if you associated with a neo-evangelical church, you are in a, you are in a non-New Testament biblical church. Uh, that is not the New Testament church. It never was. It didn't come into existence until around 1900. So you have 1800 years, 1900 years where uh, your church never existed. It was founded in a movement that started around that period of time, and uh, the churches grew from it, and as it got larger, people adapted to it. As the, uh, They moved farther away from the Bible. It looked like a really good deal. And now, you know, the neo-evangelical crowd is really the mainstay of what we would call Christianity today. The Baptists got lost in the shuffle. They lost their Bible, so they see these big neo-evangelical churches, two, three, four, five thousand people, some of them more than that, and they think that that is the key, that if I believe what they believe, if I become a church like that, then I'll have a big church too. And of course, so this is why they're, they're dumping um, what that and moving toward that, uh, that mindset. And, you know, it's a thing where along with that goes any relevance of any real doctrinal truth that's found anywhere in the Bible. And where the rapture was once the mainstay of New Testament Christianity for Bible believers, uh, it's now relegated out of the Christian circle. And that's because it's a mystery. And God only reveals his mysteries to people who believe the Word of God. You take a neo-evangelical, he'll never get any of these mysteries. So therefore, consequently, in his arrogancy, he'll think that they're, they're heresy or they're not really good teaching to believe in. And of course, it just takes somebody with a shred of Bible to, to, you know, to rip him apart and take him through the scriptures, which he, ne- he never does. But the rapture of the church is, is more and more today uh, being um, taken out of the teaching. Uh, and you find that uh, as we get closer to the second coming of Christ, um, there'll be more and more people who don't believe it. And um, here again, when you're an evangelical or a Baptist who is pretending to be an evangelical, um, your argument for it is really stupid. And, you know, I don't know how many times uh, somebody has questioned me on, do I believe the rapture? And I say, well, absolutely. And they say, well, we don't, I don't believe that. And I'll say, well, okay, why? And they'll say, well, you know, the word rapture, you don't find it in the Bible. And so I'll ask back, do you believe the Trinity? And they'll say, oh, absolutely. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I say, show me the word Trinity in the Bible. It's not in there. I said, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? Oh, show me the word Bible in the Bible not in there. The stupid mentality is if the word is not in the Bible, then it doesn't exist. And, you know, outside a mental state hospital, I I don't know where that thinking really fits into anything. Um, I mean, I know there's guys with with rubber suits on with their arms tied behind their back who think that way. Um, But, you know, that, that kind of reasoning is so shallow. But that is the mindset you're up against today. And, you know, you're up against the mindset that, that if it isn't clearly, that the name isn't in the Bible, then we don't like it, so 
you know, it, it doesn't exist. And of course, anybody with half a brain can take somebody and dismantle them with that. But that's, that's the line of thinking. And most of their Bible teaching and thinking doesn't go any deeper than that. It's a very surface-level stuff. They, they don't have a good handle on anything. Once you lose the Bible and you lose truth, then you're relegated not getting the truth from God. You have to get it from man. And, uh, you know, and then so they have to write books that, that replace the Bible. And... You know, uh, Rick Warren out at their Saddleback or wherever the name of his church is, you know, he wrote a book, The, uh, the um, Purpose Driven Life. And uh, obviously, it's, it's a book that gives you purpose and drives you in your life. I mean, that's, that's the whole mindset of it. And uh, it actually, when it came out, it shows you the mindset of the evangelical crowd. It actually outsold the Bible. Uh, and they made a big deal about that, how that the fact that the, that book that came out uh, actually outsold the Bible. And people were going to that instead of going to the Bible. But, you know, to say that God doesn't have a sense of humor and God doesn't keep things accountable, I mean, the purpose-driven life was supposed to drive you to purpose for his own boy had drove him to commit suicide. So this stuff when you just don't look at what is being put out, but you look at the background behind how it's coming out. There's a guy here in Lee Summit that run, has a big church that, that uh, just wrote his first book. And now he's uh, requiring all of his people in his church, which is probably two or 3,000 people, to buy his book. And for the next year, he's going to teach out of his book instead of the Bible. And, and that's, that's just the way it goes. And, uh, you know, it's... It, it, when you don't have the Bible as the final authority, then you're going to replace it with something else. That in itself is a mark of cults. The Mormons had to do it. Jehovah's Witnesses had to do it. The Charismatics have to do it. Uh, everybody, the Catholics had to do it. Everybody has to do it. When you reject the Word of God, for you to get around what it clearly says, you have to replace it with something else. Now we're coming up with not other translations like the New World Translations or Joseph Smith's Book of Mormons. Now we're coming up with guys who are probably saved writing their own books and then using that to teach from. And of course, that's just the day that we live in. And the reason why they do that is because when you don't know the Bible, when you don't understand the Bible, it's hard to continue to get sermons out of the Bible. So now you've got to get someplace else where it uh, makes it easier for you because, you know, your in-depth of the scriptures is, you know, you know, not very deep. So these are mysteries. And in the definitive passage on the rapture in the Bible is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to start reading for you here. Uh, uh, let's pick it up in verse 41. Now, um, as you know, the church at Corinth was having all kinds of issues and it was having all kinds of problems. And what we have here throughout this is uh, each chapter he's dealing with them on an issue that they're messed up on. And then just so you know, in chapter 15, they are messed up on the resurrection. This is why uh, in the first part of 15, the definitive passage uh, for, first, for, the, for, uh, for the gospel was found in 1 Corinthians 15 
um, in the first three or four verses. He moves through this chapter, and by the time he gets to 41, now he's going to talk about the resurrection. He talked about the resurrection of Christ and basically said that without the resurrection of Christ, we're all just wasting our time. But now he's moving down through this chapter when he's talking about the resurrection of the dead, saved dead, you and me. And this sets up for us the definitive passage on the rapture of the church. And, um, and he says in 41, there was, one, um, there was one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differ from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Uh, it is sown in corruption. That's when you were born. It is raised in incorruption. So right there, there has to be a raising of the saved people that are dead. Now, the only question, the question is whether it is or it isn't. I mean, you go over to 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, 2, you find it um, very clearly there. The, only, the question isn't, is it or is it not? The question is, where is it? And of course, Bible believers have always taught the doctrine of the rapture of the church. And so he says there that it is shown, verse 40, uh, 43, it is shown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is shown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is shown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So it is written, um, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not the first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they that are earthly, and as the heavenly, such are they that are the heavenly. And he says in verse 49, As we have borne the image of the earthly, that's right now, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now that's, that's undisputable right there. Now the question you have to ask yourself was when does that happen? Now don't tell me, and this is where I would nail a guy if I got into If a guy showed up on Thursday night and he took issue with the rapture, this is where I'd take him. And I would read that to him, and once I got him to agree that that verse means what it says, then I would ask him, where do you get the image of the, of the heavenly? And if he didn't know and couldn't take me the Bible and lay it out, this is where you, you take him apart. This is where you would nail him on the fact that, okay, let me see if I get this straight. You don't believe that what we're teaching is right about the rapture. You don't believe there is a rapture. But you can't take me in the Bible after the Bible says that as you bore the image of the earthly, you're going to bear the image of the heavenly, and you can't take me in the Bible and show me where that happens at, and yet you're going to discount what I'm saying? And you can see you're in a very bad position. You're in an undefendable position. Here's the key with most Christians today. If you just be patient, don't get your emotions involved, and stay consistent with the Scriptures. Um, everything that they believe is undefendable when it comes to the Bible. Um, just about every teaching that they have, when you go to the Scriptures, is totally undefendable. But they, once they have lost the Bible, then they don't have the Bible anymore. Therefore, you know, if you're smart enough to know that, then you know that the fact that you can, you can get them where they can't defend themselves, and that would be a place right here. Now look at verse 50. 
Now I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. He's, he's talking about the raising of your spiritual body in con contrast to the flesh that we have now. Now, verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. Okay, here it is. This is mystery number five. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be chained. But not everybody is going to die. Now, here's where you can get him. We shall all be chained in a moment, in a twinkling of the eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be chained. Now, what you want to do is pin him down on that, and you want to ask him, where does that happen? It's, it's not a question, does it happen or not? The verse says it happens. I want to know from you, you want to reject me and call our teaching heretical, okay. Show me where that's at in the Bible. Tell me when that takes place in our, in our lives as Christians. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruption shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass, saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, but the strength of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ's death on the cross gave us the victory over sin, over the death, and over the law. So, look what he says. Therefore, because of what he just said, in relationship to your body being changed, therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, unmovable, okay, then this concept of your body being changed, this mystery... You and I are to be steadfast and unmovable. Now, I can't help it if a bunch of God's people today got unsteadfast and are now movable. The position of this church, my position, will always be on the rapture of the church, steadfast and unmovable. The fact that the word rapture is not in the Bible doesn't change a thing for me. Now, They're always telling us that, that the rapture concepts, like a couple Thursday nights ago, I don't think it was this Thursday night, I think it was last Thursday night, Aaron asked a question about uh, dispensationalism. And he asked me the question that were there any uh, dispensationalists who believe that before Darby because everybody turns it back to Darby. And, um, you know, and I, I explained that to everybody. Uh, I didn't go into a lot of detail, but... Uh, you can find people uh, all down through history uh, before Darby, two, three, four hundred years before Darby shows up, who believe in not only dispensationalism, but believe in the rapture of the church. Um, the oldest reference to the rapture of the church is found in the Latin manuscript Ephraim, Syria, which means it come out of Syria, where they're first called Christians in Antioch. And it is written around 306 to 350 A.D. That is the earliest reference that we find to somebody who is a New Testament Christian out of the right church believing and talking about the rapture of the church. Um, but you're going to find, uh, you know, uh, uh, all down through history. Once the Reformation takes place, 
then, you know, things start to break up a little bit. The reason why you don't find a lot of things being written during that 500 to 1500 is because of the fact that the Catholic Church had such a stranglehold on everything that was being written, nothing got out. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that people, um, people weren't doing it. There is no record anywhere in the writings of man other than the Bible. There's no record anywhere in church history of anybody preaching the gospel till after 1500. Now, does that mean nobody did? Of course not. It means that the Roman Catholic Church had such a suppression on literature that was being put out that it didn't get out. And once the Reformation takes place, then you, you see this thing move out. David Gregory was the math professor at, at Yale in 1710, 1710, 150 years after the Reformation. In 1710, he did a work that went over 1,000 pages and over 650,000 words dealing with the dispensations and dealing with the time element of the second coming of Christ and putting the rapture right in the middle of it. 1710. And of course, um, you know, his work has never been refuted. And that's the thing. When, as an evangelical or a Baptist who doesn't want to believe the Bible, when you can't refute something, you know what you do? You just put it over here in a corner and ignore it. And then when you teach your people, you never, you never bring that in. You don't ever want to bring, you can always tell somebody who's dishonest. They won't, they won't honestly look at both sides of the issue. I studied the, and it's a benefit to you, other than totally being academically honest, you know, but I, 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 I'm not somebody who just took the King James Bible side. I mean, I took, I, I spent as much time studying the other guys as I did this one. And I really didn't care if it was the Word of God or not. I just wanted the truth. I have no hobby horse to ride with the King James Bible. If I thought the new NIV was the Word of God, I'd dump this thing so fast and take that, your head would swim. But I have no bias. I just look at the facts. And you've got to have the facts on both sides. The Bible says, He that heareth a matter before he uh, answereth a matter, before he heareth it, it's foolish, it's foolish and it's folly unto him. And these guys don't want the facts. They don't want to look at both sides. They have what they want to believe. Anything that goes contrary to that gets put over here and ignored. And... Um, that's bad for them, good for you, because you can drag that stuff out and they have no defense to it. Now, let me give you the bottom line for the rapture of the church. And um, come back here to 1 Corinthians 15 again. Now, Here's the key, and they never get this because it's a mystery. And if you don't see what I'm about to give you here, then the rapture will never be anything doctrinally to you. Forget the word rapture for a moment. The word rapture is the word that is connected with being totally, completely um, in love with something or somebody. Rapture, uh, raptured, your heart, raptured. So the word rapture came into being down through church history because and an evangelical will never get this, real Christians love the Bible. 
Real Christians understood that the last prayer in the Bible, the neo-evangelical couldn't figure out if you put a gun to his head, was for the Lord to come back and get you out of this mess. So what happens is that they associated with the coming of the Lord for them with all the persecution they were going through, and it was the love theme of their heart, and it filled their heart with, here it comes, rapture. And that was their term for it. It is not the Bible term. We, we use the term, you know, um, in that sense. And so somebody wants to make a doctrinal issue that it can't exist because you don't find the name in it. Uh, come on. I mean, I don't find your name in the Bible. So what does that tell me about you? <laughs> so it's a thing where if you want to understand the rapture, you've got to realize that the rapture in the Bible defined is a harvest. That's what you got to remember. And the next thing you want to remember is that to any harvest, there will be three parts. You're going to find the fruit that is ripe early. And so you go in and take that, and that's called the first fruits. You'll find the, little later on, the main body of the harvest and you come in and take that. But anybody knows that not all the fruit is ripe, so you have some that has to have a little longer to ripen, and then you go back and you get those, and those are called the gleanings. So the rapture, the rapture has three parts to it. You could say that there's three raptures in the Bible, that would be correct too, but then you scare Baptists up the tree with that one. I used to have fun with that a long time ago uh, when I talk about uh, when I've been preaching places and I knew that people, and I wanted to motivate them, and I'd, I'd just talk about not knowing the Bible, and I'd, I'd, I'd just talk about the Bible. It says there's three heavens. Which one are you going to when you die? They get real wide-eyed, and I take them over there and say, Paul was caught up to the third heaven, you know? I'm just going to tell you, if you live a life like Paul, you go to the third heaven. If you live a life like John the Baptist, you go to the second heaven. If you live a life like most of you, you go to the first heaven. And the first heaven is only 20 feet over hell. It's hot, but you're not burning. You people will believe that. And of course, um, there's three heavens. The first heaven is our atmosphere. The second heaven is outer space. And the third heaven is where God was. When you go through the Bible and you, you see what the word heaven means, but who does that today? And it's like the rapture. I used to say, well, there's three raptures in the Bible. Which one are you going up in? And they didn't have a clue. And, of course, the, it's a mystery. And so all the Baptists today, the evangelical crowd and all that, anybody who rejects the rapture uh, is someone who knows nothing about the Bible to any great length or depth. And uh, you will find, uh, come over to Revelation chapter 4. Now keep your finger here in 1 Corinthians because I'm going to come back there. But come over to Revelation chapter 4. <coughs> now I've taught you before how that the Revelation lays out the seven periods of church history. And then in chapter 4 you have the rapture of the church. And you... You find the word church through here many, many times, something like 20-some times in the first three chapters, and then you don't find it anymore. It's gone. And then immediately after chapter 4 or 5, the tribulation starts and off you go. 
But I want you to notice 4.1, and this is the rapture of the church in type uh, in the Bible. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I was there with a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show you things uh, that must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and beheld a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now that's John being caught up, and John is a type of the church. And the phrase that I want you to see there is the phrase, come up hither. And I told you that there's three raptures of the church, or three parts of the rapture. Therefore, you're going to find the term, come up hither, three times in the Bible. And nobody knows this. This is part of the mystery. And, uh, you know, it's it's just that simple. And you're going to find that, uh, now come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now look at verse, um, verse 20, chapter uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now was Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. And since by man came death, by man uh, came also the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, even so when Christ shall all be made alive. Now watch the next verse very carefully. But every man in his own order. Then there's an order to you getting your glorified body, or getting resurrected, put it that way, not your glorified body, because not everybody gets one of those. But there is an order to the resurrection of man. Here's the order. But every man in his own order. Christ, notice the first fruits. Notice how Christ the first fruits. That'll be the Old Testament saints that Christ take up with him when he goes. So when you go over to Proverbs chapter 25, verse 7, which talks about the Old Testament saints going up, you'll find the phrase, come up hither. Then look at it. Christ the first fruits, Old Testament saints, afterwards they that are Christ at his coming. Now there is the rapture of the church. There's the main harvest. The, you're clearly told that the Old Testament saints are the first fruits. The church now is the harvest. So you'll find in Revelation chapter 4, where the church goes up, the second time, come up hither. Then it says, verse 24, then cometh the end. Now, here's where the key words in the Bible will pay off for you. If you're a neo-evangelical or your average Baptist or your average Christian, these words will mean nothing to you because the Bible means nothing to you. When I read, then cometh the end, I immediately know the end there is the end of the tribulation period. Matthew chapter 24. He that endureth the end, the same shall be saved. So that, no, that's a red flag word for me. So I, he already gave me the first key was the first fruits, which I can figure out that the main harvest is the church. And then he says, come at the end. And the end will be the rapture of the tribulation saints right around the time of the second coming of Christ, which you find in Revelation chapter 11, typified by Moses and Elijah. And lo and behold, there's the third time you find up, come up hither. So uh, Revelation eleven twelve. So uh, it's very clear that the, uh, the rapture, the name rapture, is not what you, you emphasize. You emphasize that it's a harvest, and there's three parts of that harvest. And the definitive chapter on it is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which deals with the resurrection of Christ first, and then based on the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of you and me. 
And he clearly tells us that there's a spiritual body that you're going to get. And it's going to be gotten in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. And of course, that's, uh, uh, that's how the rapture lays itself out. Once, once you just do what I just did, you can see that there's no mystery. You can see the mystery to it. I mean, there's no mystery to me and you, but it's a mystery in the sense of there it is. And this is why that if you reject the Bible, you'll never get this. And so now you come to the point that you're so stupid when it comes to the Bible, you have to throw out the great mainstays of the doctrines of the Bible because of your inadequacy of the Bible. And, uh, you know, to anybody who knows the Bible, you look like a rank fool, which would be nothing compared to how you look at the judgment seat of Christ. But that's another message. But there's the rapture, there's the mystery of the rapture of the church. And that mystery is the fact that it's not in the name rapture. It's found in the definitive passage in 1 Corinthians 15 that shows you that it's a harvest, and there's three parts to the harvest, and it actually walks you through the three places in the Bible where you find the phrase, come up hither. Only three times in the Bible. Once for every man in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, Old Testament saints. Then they would, at his coming, there's the church. Then cometh the end. And uh, there's the second coming of Christ with the tribulation saints. So it's really simple once you just get into the Bible. Um, you know, a third grader could pick it up the way I laid it out to you. It's so simple and so basic and so easy. But this is God's systematic theology. You notice I didn't go to the Greek one time. I didn't use any words or phrases that anybody with a sixth grade education couldn't get. Because the Bible is a plain book laid out in a very plain way, and it's, it's easy. God never intended to make anybody have a hard time with the Bible. The devil did, but God never did. So that's the rapture of the church. Now the sixth one will be uh, found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And uh, I want to begin reading, but we're going to draw uh, our attention to verse 7, but I've I got to read it first for you. Verse 2-1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be soon not shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. Uh, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day uh, shall not come uh, except there be a falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, uh, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that I, when I was yet with you, I told you these things. Now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. Now here's the verse that kicks off this sixth mystery. 
For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Now, this is called the mystery of iniquity. And the mystery of iniquity is centered around the mystery of the Antichrist. Uh, there's probably more information on the Antichrist than any other person in the Bible outside the Lord Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, uh, the pictures are extremely uh, vivid all the way through the Bible. Uh, Revelation chapter 17 and 18, where we were at the other night on Thursday night, that shows you uh, his, his wife, his bride. Christ has a bride, the church. The devil has a bride, or the Antichrist has a bride. It's Rome, Roman Catholic Church. And so, you know, you, know, you don't stop there. Uh, God has his Bible, the devil has his. And it just right on down the line. And of course, the, the mystery is, where does he come from? You know, how does he exist through history? And in Paul's day, even though Paul was talking about the end times here in verses 1, 2, and 3, the times that we are living, Paul was telling you in verse 7 that the mystery is that he's already at work in Paul's day. And of course, that is probably one of the greatest keys to this mystery. Once you identify the Antichrist uh, and the, and the two key the two key chapters in the Bible on the devil and the Antichrist are Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41 in the Old Testament. It's Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13 in the New Testament. You get those four chapters together, and then it's just a hop, skimp, and a jump to Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And, you know, um, it's a thing where once you recognize that um, uh, all the keys are here, uh, in verse 3, he's called the son of perdition. And of course, there's only two men in the Bible that are called the son of perdition. One of them is the Antichrist himself, and the other one is Judas Iscariot. And this begins the unraveling of the mystery. The Antichrist is Judas, or I should say Judas is the Antichrist. And, uh, you know, Judas, if John 6, 70, we're very clearly told by Jesus himself that if I not chosen you 12, and one of you is a devil. Uh, Judas was a satanic implant into the Twelve. And uh, he went in there to, obviously, to uh, stop the Lord from uh, ever being made the king of Israel. So he orchestrates the scribes and the Pharisees and, and get rid of Christ. And, of course, uh, it didn't work very well because God had other plans, but that's, you know, goes to show you that no matter what the devil does, God always has a bigger plan the devil doesn't see. But, but uh, it's very clearly that the Antichrist is, is Judas. The first type of Antichrist in the Bible is Cain and um, Genesis 4. There's so much information in there that it's unbelievable. When you start to put it all together, and we don't have time to do that because I'm just giving you the mystery here. You'll get the rest of it if you stick around any length of time. Uh, but the mystery is, how did the Antichrist, where did he come from? How did he survive? Uh, how did he make it down through history? And, uh, you know, how do we know where he's at and what he's going to do? And how do we identify him when he shows up? <clears throat> and, of course, If any man love God, the same is known of him. 
And if any man does love God, the same was also known to him. You know how I know if you're the real deal or not? You know how you know if I'm the real deal or not? The church that I belong to and the Bible that I preach. You know how to know uh, where the devil's at down through history and, and it, it's not the real deal? You know it by the church and the Bible that they preach. Same thing. You find a church that has the devil's, uh, is the devil's church and then has the devil's Bible, you're in the wrong pew. And uh, sometimes you'll find uh, churches like the evangelical crowd and Baptist crowd, just everybody today, um, they're, uh, they claim to be God's church with, with the devil's Bible. And uh, there's no question around the fact, no matter how you may not like it or how it may, you know, take away your warm, fuzzy feeling about your NIV, um, but at the end of the day, uh, it is Satan's Bible, as all of them are. And the quicker somebody learns that, the better off they are. So if I want to find where this mystery of iniquity starts, I'm going to find two things, and I'm going to trace them. I'm going to find, first of all, where his Bible is at, and I'm going to find where his church is at. Once I do that, then the mystery is pretty much solved. Because now all i got to do is go back in history, all the way back from Genesis 4, and then go on from there. It's a great principle in Genesis with Cain. I don't think you ever maybe saw it. And this is so true of churches today, preachers today, Christians today. It's also true of a lot of God's people who have the right Bible in the right church. So I want you to listen to me very carefully. The Bible says that Cain brought an offering to the Lord. And the Bible says that God didn't have respect to his offerings. And yet God told him, but he upset about Cain. I didn't accept your offering. Okay, go get the right, sell your fruits and vegetables and go get a lamb and bring it back and we'll be, we'll be good. I, I know that there's no Hungarians around yet, but we'll be hunky-dory. Just go get a lamb, bring it to me, sacrifice, and I'll accept it. We're good to go. You get the first look inside of Cain's heart that his attitude wasn't about doing right. His attitude about was doing what he wanted to do his way. Stay with me. So what does the Bible say he does? He leaves the presence of the Lord. Then what does he do? He goes and builds his own city. Why does he go build his own city? Because there he can do it his way the way he wants to do it. And that's exactly what happens. You reject the Bible, you reject the truth, so you go build your church the way you want it to be, and you can do it the way you want to do it without getting the Bible involved. I've had people in this church that weren't doing what's right. They wanted to, they didn't want to do what they needed to do. So the truth here keeps bashing them alongside the head, so you know what they do? They leave here, go find another church where they can be comfortable and do whatever they want to do. They don't have to sit under the hard preaching. They don't have to sit under the truth. Uh, they can just get whatever they want to get on a plausible thing, and they can be what they want to be and do what they want to do, and uh, they're out under the pressure. That's what Cain did. Cain left the presence of the Lord because he had an attitude of heart toward God's Word. 
So he goes and builds a city. We're in that city. He can do it his way any way he wants because it's his city. I've had guys over my ministry over the years um, want to start a church but not want to do it the Bible way. So you know what they do? They go out and they don't want to do it God's way, so they go out on their own, start a church over here someplace, and then they can do whatever they want to do the way they wanted to do it. It usually fails after four or five years, miserably, but that's the Cain principle. When you don't want to do what God says, you'll find another way to do what you want to do. In Cain's case, he went, left the presence of the Lord, built his own city, and then in his own city, I can do what I want to do. You don't like the church here and what it preaches, go start your own, go find another one, do whatever you want to do. But keep in mind that every time you do that, you leave the presence of the Lord. That's the key. So we see that, that the mystery of iniquity is how did the Antichrist survive uh, and where is he at today? And, um, you know, when is he going to be? I would probably say, and I may be wrong on this, but I would probably say that we are so close to the end here that uh, if you look down here, I want you to see something here in uh, Look at, uh, look, at, uh, look at verse 3. Let's read it. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, that the man of sin be revealed, uh, the son of perdition. Then look down here, verse 7. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall the wicked be revealed. Now, he already told you that he was revealed up there. Um, and then he says he's going to be revealed. There's two revealings of the Antichrist. The first revealing is probably while we're still here. We don't know who he is. We don't see him. But there's a good chance that he's alive today somewhere. That he's already here. And of course, the only reason I could be wrong about that is if the rapture is not as close as I think it is and we still have a little time here, then, but my point is this, there's two revealings of him. He'll probably be revealed into this world uh, at one point, and then at a later point, after the rapture of the church, he becomes revealed as the Antichrist, and the whole world sees him. There's two revealings of him here, and, uh, and that's a thing where, <clears throat> that's part of the mystery. And uh, you begin to uh, see how the, the devil uh, used the Antichrist, the son of perdition, Judas, to try to mess up the first coming of Christ. So he's going to use the same guy, Judas, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, to try to mess up the second coming of Christ. The Bible is consistent. Once you follow and get that in your brain, how consistent the Bible is, it'll unlock so many things for you. Because the Bible never breaks its consistency. Uh, and when he says, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who letteth will let until he be taken out of the way, obviously that's the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God is the only thing that is holding back um, the Antichrist from taking over. 
And when the rapture of the church takes place, the Holy Spirit of God only exists today in the body of believers. So when the rapture takes place, the Spirit of God goes out. And it's a time when the world is turned over completely to the Antichrist and there's no Holy Spirit of God here in the sense of the way it is now. And uh, he has complete reign over everything. And uh, it's a thing where um, it's, it's very clear that this is the mystery of iniquity, how the thing plays itself out. And, um, you know, it's really key. Now, along with this will be the seventh one, and that will be over in Revelation chapter 17. So let's stay the two together here, and we'll, we'll tie them together for you. Hey, yeah. Um, would the first revealing of the Antichrist not be when Jesus did it to the disciples? The- it could be. Okay. It probably is. But it's got a double application to it as far as we know he's coming back again. You know, it, it, it is. Um, a lot of things in the Bible will have a double application to it. It'll have a primary application, which is what Zach just said, that it's a reference to him coming to the church or coming to uh, in Christ's time. That's true. But then we also know that there's a second coming of the Antichrist. It's a lot like going back to the rapture. And an evangelic will never get this. You know how I know, if if I didn't know any other way that there was a rapture, I'd know it by the consistency. When Christ came the first time, when he was born the first time, when he came the first time, he came privately to his family. And then three and a half years, or 30 years later, he was revealed as the Son of God to the world. So that's consistent. So the rapture of the church is going to be his appearing to his family. And then a period of time later, the second coming of Christ is going to come to the whole world. See, that's consistency. That shows you how that if you see something once, follow it through. And sometimes, many times, there'll be more than one application to it uh, because it'll teach you multiple things, and that's just the way the Bible does. All right, now come over to Revelation chapter 17. And it says, verse 5, and upon, talk, we talked about this uh, Thursday night, so I won't get into it a lot of deep. Um, and upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abomination of the earth. Now this is your seventh mystery. And the sixth mystery and the seventh mystery are tied together. And this one is Mystery Babylon the Great. And the mystery here is, You find Babylon here in Revelation 17, but you also find it back in Genesis chapter 4 and 5. So you you have Babylon all the way through your Bible. And the the, the key is here, uh, mystery Babylon the great, the mother of harlots. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, as I laid out from this chapter, and the young man that asked that question was a great question, and I came down and showed you the characteristics that clearly show you that, um, that it is the Catholic Church. It says the mother of harlots. One of the things that you'll want to remember, in the Old Testament, it starts with Baal worship. 
And then every false religion down through the Old Testament is a derivative or a spinoff off of Baal worship. You want to remember that. It's Babel, Baal, Babel, Babylon that's mentioned first in the Bible. And that's where it starts. <clears throat> and then it moves <clears throat> through all the other Gentile worlds as they want to shape it, change it for what they want, what they need. But it all goes back originally to Baal. So you'll find the characteristics all the way through it of, uh, of Baal worship, even though it may be called by something different. Uh, they all, all basically fall around the sun god or the sun. And, of course, that's Baal. And uh, Baal is the sun god. <clears throat> and the Baal's birthday is from, from religion is December 25th. That's when he was born. So it's a thing where, um, you know, Baal worship is the, is the fundamental deal. So once you see that, you can trace that through. Once you see how it flips uh, at the 300-400 A.D. mark with Constantine, then you begin to see how that Babylon now shifts from what she was in the Old Testament and she moves now into the New Testament. If you go back uh, in Job chapter 40 and 41, it says back there concerning the devil, uh, who can discover the face of his garments. And down through the history of the Bible, you will find that the devil changes garments seven times. In other words, the face always stays the same. This is very important. The face always stays the same, but the garment changes. And you will find that that simply means that down through history, there's seven times that he changed his operation to present himself as another identity, even though the face was the same. And uh, we use that at uh, bottom line uh, face value. What is the bottom line? <clears throat> well, at the end of the day, what is face value of this? What is, what, is it, what, is, what is it worth? What is it? And of course, that's why it says discover the face of his garment. And he changes those garments down through history seven times. The person who believes the Bible and, and studies the Bible, loves the Bible, will figure that out because a little bit before that he says, I will not conceal his, 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 uh, his, uh, his parts his power or his comely proportion. So the Bible says that he will lay out the devil. Now, obviously, this is why the devil hates the King James Bible and wants to get all of his people to get a watered-down butter knife instead of a sharp two-edged sword. And uh, it's a thing where uh, a butter knife produces butter knife sermons. A two-edged sword produces bloody sermons. You can't kill somebody with a butter knife very easily. You have to work at it. But you can kill him real quick with a sword. Just watch Michonne on The Walking Dead with that sword she's got, man. <laughs> now, as you come through this, you begin to see that just like in the Old Testament, that all false religions came from Baal worship, uh, all, all the false religions today come from uh, the Roman Catholic Church. She is the mother of harlots. That's the great mystery here. Uh, we have little phrases that we use in the world that we don't know where they come from, but they're very uh, significant. One of them is that all roads lead to Rome. 
And, um, and that's such a true statement. Everything goes back to Rome. The Roman Empire changed the world like no other, uh, no other empire. And uh, I know that Alexander the Great conquered all the known world, but he never got as far as Rome did. And uh, I know that the Assyrians and the Persians, they all had their fair share, but the, earth, the world was a lot smaller back then. Nobody affected the world to the degree that the Roman Catholic Church did once she came into power. And uh, Rome, from a military standpoint, conquered all of Europe, all of Egypt, all of Africa, uh, just about everything in the known world as a military power. But the devil's smart enough to know that uh, nations come and go. And so he knew that there was only a matter of time before that Rome as a military power uh, would, be, would be destroyed. Um, not only were there other nations that were rising up, like the Germanic hordes, the Hattila the Hun, uh, Itella, um, and those guys who actually destroyed Rome, um, but also the corruption of the Rome uh, Catholic Church and Rome itself, uh, Rome itself, not the Catholic Church yet, Rome itself uh, was degrading it to the place much like it is in America. If you want to see the end of the Roman Empire, just look at the end of America. The sin and the decency and all of the stuff that was going on weakened that nation and destroyed it. They lost the values of what they once had that made them a great conquering nation. And America had went the same way. So you learn from the lessons of history. So the devil knew that as a military power, Rome was coming to the end. So he was smart enough to know that a military power, looking down through history, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Syria, um, uh, Persia, and then Greece, and now Rome, were all going to come to an end as a military power. He knows the only thing that you could never stop would be a religion. So in 400 AD, he shifts from the military nation to a religious nation. And then it goes to the whole world. You can't stop that. You can wipe out a nation, but you can't wipe out an idea. You can wipe out every people, but you can't wipe out a philosophy, or in this case, a religion. And so he knew that when Attila the Hun came down, which he did, and sacked Rome, and Rome ceased to be as a uh, military power and lost all of that stuff, the devil didn't mind because he was gaining more ground, not by conquering it militarily, but by conquering it through a religion. And that's what he did. So he didn't care that Attila the Hun sacked Rome. Rome was just fine because now Rome had made the shift from a political organization to a religious organization. And now he had the ability to make alliances with all the other European nations that in time he'd come down and wipe out Attila the Hun. See how it works? Pope didn't have to... Pope didn't have to... Uh, the, the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church didn't have to have an army. They just made all the other nations become Roman Catholics, and they were their armies. So the Pope would just pull their strings and get Ferdinand or get this guy or get Louis XIV or, you know, whatever the case may be, to go out and, and fight for them and to kill the enemies of Rome and, or a little bit later on the, uh, the Christians. It's 
So you see some of the great wars being waged against God's people all through the string pulling of the Roman Catholic Church. So she switches over and now she comes to the point where all the other, all the other religions now come from her up to uh, right before the Reformation. You had the Bible believers and you had the, uh, you had the Roman Catholic Church. There's a little riff in the Roman Catholic Church and the uh, Greek Orthodox come out of the Roman Catholic Church and set up their own little system. A little bit later on, the Russian Orthodox does the same thing. They're primarily Western Catholics. They, they, they just left the church, but they believe the same thing. And uh, you hear on the news today how that over in the Syria and over in Bosnia and those places, but that the Christians are being persecuted. And the double, dumb, stupid Americans think that that means that there's Christians like you and I. The Christians they're talking about are the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, who are nothing more than Western Roman Catholics. Uh, I don't believe anything we believe. The term Christian is a very lucrative term today. You've got to look at it a little bit before you decide that, yeah, they're really Christians. So those two split out. The, Roman, uh, the Reformation comes in, and of course Martin Luther breaks out, <clears throat> and he becomes the Lutheran Church. Uh, Zwigli and Calvin break out, and they become the Presbyterian Church. Um, Henry VIII breaks out a little bit before them, and there comes the Church of England. Uh, John Wesley is in the Church of England. He breaks out and becomes a Methodist. All those churches are called Protestant churches. They're called Protestant churches because the word Protestant means protester. And they protested against the Roman Catholic Church, thereby came out of the Roman Catholic Church during the Reformation period. They're not New Testament Bible-believing churches. They all hold to Rome. There wasn't a one of them that didn't stay with baby sprinkling. Uh, they all developed their own concept of the sacraments or the hierarchy of the church. They all follow the same pattern. It's just a little variation because they're not Roman Catholic anymore. Now they're spinoffs. They're, the, uh, they're a little different than their mama. But they're from their mama. And she's the great whore. Uh, and the Bible says that she's the mother of harlots. Now, when you get a little bit farther on, <clears throat> you get into America after the Reformation, uh, then you find what we normally call the American cults. And at first glance, you would hard be pressed to see how a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon would be ever connected to the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, on the surface, they look like they're a thousand million light years apart. But when you take the American cults, all of them, uh, you'll find that even though they, they, they look at the Roman Catholic Church as Satan's church, there's no quote many of them do, they have no love for it whatsoever. <clears throat> but that's just, that's just the parsley alongside of the steak to make it look better. At the end of the day, they all have the same basic characteristics of the Roman Catholic Church because directly or indirectly, they came from the mother harlot. So you're going to find, if you're a Mormon, Jehovah Witness, seven-day disadvantage, just the Church of Christ or whatever, they're all going to follow the same characteristics from the Mama Church, uh, even though they have no love for the Mama Church, but they still came out of the Mama Church. I know lots of kids that have nothing to do with their mothers. They hate their mothers. They don't talk good about their mothers. They, they, 
would tell you nothing good and talk all day long about how bad they are, but at the end of the day, she's still your mother. And I don't care what a Jehovah Witness says or a Mormon says, at the end of the day, she's still your mama. So first of all, you find that uh, all these American cults take the number one position that the Roman Catholic Church does, and that is that they believe that they're the only true church. I don't care what it is. If you're a Mormon, Jehovah Witnesses, you think that you're the only true church. The second thing that they teach, that the Roman Catholic Church teaches, is that not only are they the only true church, but salvation is only found in their church. Roman Catholic Church teaches that, that if you're not a baptized member of the Catholic Church, there's no salvation for you. That she is the only true church and salvation is only found in her. The second the third thing that uh, they all do is that they all uh, think that they have taken a place of the nation of Israel. And that's exactly what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. The fourth thing that they all do is they all come up with a, something that, that uh, supersedes the Bible. Now, for the Catholic Church, it'll be the traditions of the church. For a Mormon, it'll be Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon. For the uh, Christian scientists, it'll be the writings of, of, of the founders. Everybody in those American cults cannot use the Bible. The Jehovah Witnesses used the King James Bible for 50, 60 years until they kept getting their rear ends kicked by Baptists, and so they finally rewrote the Bible and come out with a New World Translation that fits everything the way they wanted to believe, and not now with their official Bible. The Catholic Church had to have the tradition of the Church and had to have the Apocrypha. Uh, so they all follow that line of reasoning. All the Protestant churches go back into the Roman Catholic Church to some extent. And uh, you find that through uh, what is commonly called in history the Counter-Reformation. This is also part of the mystery. When the Jesuit system came into being with uh, Pope, uh, 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 when the Pope uh, got uh, Ignatius Loyola uh, to organize the Jesuits, one of the things that uh, they, first thing that they did was, call, was to start a Counter-Reformation. And what they did was that they went back in Europe to take back these churches that left. If they couldn't get them back in the fold, they at least got them to go along and accept the teaching. So you'll find that this is why Europe is absolutely dead today. This is why, this is why that Christianity had to break out of Europe with the pilgrims in, in, in Plymouth and come to America because Europe was doomed. Europe was landlocked, and the Catholic Church was going to regather all of those churches uh, through the teaching, through the Jesuits. So what happened was, is that the Jesuits started a counter-reformation uh, uh, where they actually began to rewrite the aspect of history. Uh, they had a thing called the Oxford Movement, where Jesuit priests, would be disguised as Protestant ministers, went into Protestant seminaries, graduated from Protestant seminaries, took Protestant churches, and then slowly brought them back in line with the Catholic Church. It's called the Oxford Movement. And you'll find that the mystery of this woman is her tentacles are go deep and they go far. And I would say uh, after that, when the American cults came in to America... Uh, the Jesuits were right behind it, and uh, the, um, the Jesuit schools across America number something like 20,000. Uh, their headquarters is in New Orleans at Loyola University. 
And of course, New Orleans is uh, named after a town in France, which was the Jesuit hotbed, and so they named it after their namesake. And of course, uh, uh, she has tried to undermine America in everything that she has done. Most people know about the Revolutionary War, but most people don't know about the French and Indian War. The French and Indian War took place, what, 30 years before the American Revolutionary War? And in that one, we were on the side of the British, the colonists. We fought with the British against the French and the Indians. And the French had come up through New Orleans and had come in there, and it was nothing more than a ploy to uh, bring back America under the Roman Catholic Church. And, of course, uh, it didn't work. And that's why you'll find that uh, at the beginning, uh, this country uh, kind of balanced back and forth of going back to Rome and you all being raised in a church-state setup. And that's why you find that uh, the Jesuit movement came up from New Orleans. It was a hotbed in war, more than a religious war uh, than it was to keep France out, though I don't think they looked at it that way. But, uh, but the bottom line was this is why you find uh, um, that, that uh, Lord, uh, a guy by the name of Lord Baltimore, who was greatly influenced and part of the Jesuits, tried to turn the corner to bring it all back. And, of course, they had a foothold in America, but then they got booted out when they lost it. But you find traces of it because uh, Baltimore is uh, the capital of a nice state that is named after the Roman Catholic Church, Maryland. We know it as Maryland. A lot of history to things like that. Most people never figure it out. And, of course, uh, all roads lead to Rome. So when the Bible talks about the fact that she is uh, the mother of harlots, uh, as they say down south, you ain't whistling Dixie. Uh, she is. <laughs> she is. She is. Every false religion and cult in the Old Testament comes out of bear worship. Every religious cult today in the church age comes out of Rome. We go through back in history after World War II, you know, I talked about, uh, uh, the Thursday night I talked about Fatima, Portugal. Uh, somebody uh, wrote in there. I wish they'd, well, I'd have got that question. I think it came in right at the end. Uh, and he, he basically uh, said, I thought all, uh, all Catholics were communists. You know, I was talking about the communism and the Catholics. And, and he wrote back and he says, he, he wrote a question. He said, I, but I thought all Catholics were communists. And that's a great statement because it's a half-truth. And it sets up a great precedent uh, and understanding of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church itself is not communist. It's against communism. But the Roman Catholic Church, within its priesthood, you will find priests who are. And they're not communists because they're Marxists. They're communists because that mindset helps them accomplish the purpose that they want to accomplish. The devil will use anything to accomplish his purpose. And though the Catholic Church may say, I'm against communism, there will be priests who will use that idea of Marxism to get control. You saw it down in El Salvador uh, when the war was going on down there. The Catholic Church, through the Jesuit system, gave the idea of liberation theology. Liberation theology was the teaching that if a country was oppressing you, you had a right to raise up arms and fight that country and overthrow that country. That came from the Jesuits. But Romero used it 
through the communist movement. And the Catholic Church never worried about linking up with anybody because once they got in power, they'd eliminate the communists. They will use whatever they need to use to accomplish their purpose. The Catholic Church really, and most people don't get this, the Catholic Church does not care what you believe, what you practice or what you do, as long as you stay Catholic. In, in Africa, priests will allow the African tribes to have a witch doctor, practice voodoo, do whatever they want to do, as long as they got baptized Catholic and come to Mass on Sunday. They don't go past that. They're looking at, they're looking at world domination. And we, are, we made a, you know, anybody who wasn't paying attention during the Cold War, we were led to believe that communism was the threat of the world and Roman Catholicism was the great savior of it, when in reality, communism wasn't anything. The real detriment to the world was Roman Catholicism. You know how I know that now? I knew it then, but you know how I know it now? Because communism is gone and the Catholic Church is still here. So, it's one of those things where that mystery of iniquity doth already work. And Babylon mystery, the religion, the mother of harlots. That's a pretty powerful concept. And, uh, it, it, and I'm just giving you the tip of the iceberg. I mean, I, you know, there are so much that we could talk about, but I just want you to get the idea on these mysteries, how important they are. You stick around here any length of time, we're probably already on the website. You can get all the pieces you need to connect the dots. Uh, we go over it all the time. But I'm telling you, that is one of the great, great, great secrets of the, of the, of the church age that most people never see. Uh, they think that the Reformation ended the world power of the Roman Catholic Church. She just went underground. Where she had the world in her grip openly, now she got the world in her grip underground. And when all of these other churches split off the Reformation, devil's not stupid. He just, now instead of having one main Roman Catholic Church, he's got a bunch of little harlots running around from mommy harlot, and they're all doing the same thing. He's not stupid. He knows how to do it. <coughs> this is why he hates the King James Bible. And this is why if you love the NIV, you're his buddy. And of course, uh, you don't like that, but it's true. Because that book stands apart from all the other ones, and that is the only book on the planet that will reveal the face of his garments. Everything else, he just masks it and camouflages it, and you get it and go to church and sit there and think you're doing what God wants you to do and you're a nice little Christian person and truth of the matter is you're in uh, if you are saved you're in God's church with the devil's Bible how's that work for you? Congratulations incredible well that'll end the seven mysteries we got a few minutes here let's start the next section yes because the hierarchy of the church looks at communism as wanting the world domination, and that's reserved for them. So they look at communism as a threat to them in its practice and principles because communism is atheistic. No God. So if the communism actually got into the world, they would eliminate the Roman Catholic Church. So the Roman Catholic Church has to stop that because she wants to run the world. God has to stop that 
because he knows that the Antichrist, for his purpose, is not going to come through communism, it's going to come through the Roman Catholic Church. It's, history, is a pot, history is a game of chess. And it's God's move and the devil's move. And of course, they are opposed to that because communism, if it got into power, like they did in wherever, they would wipe out every Catholic and, and they'd be done. So they've got to stop it. But at the same time, on the lower levels, in smaller third world countries, they'll use the very principles to get the people that communism teaches, but they won't allow it on a worldwide scale because they don't. In other words, the devil uses whatever works for him. It's all his in the end anyhow. So that's, you know, that's basically what you have. Yeah. When you say the Antichrist will come through the Catholic Church, what do you think that'll look like? Like as a pope or as... He says, do I, when I say that the Antichrist will come through the Catholic Church, it's hard to say. Um, again, consistency. Every world dictator in the 20th century, Castro, Tito, Mussolini, Adolf Hitler, every world dictator has either been Roman Catholic or a derivative of it. So it has to play in there somehow. Now, a lot of people think he'll be, the, he'll be one of the popes. I, I don't necessarily think that. I mean, I, I, he doesn't have to be. Uh, he could be. Um, it could be a pope that is elected. That, uh, but most popes are, are too old because the Antichrist is going to have to be uh, 33 years of age when he comes to the throne, when he comes to the, that. So, it, you know, most popes are too old unless they put a pope in there that's, you know, that's a lot younger, which I don't see happening. I would think that it would probably be somebody under the surface that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. Barack Obama, and I don't think he's the Antichrist, uh, but if you observe things, you'll see how that I remember back, uh, he'd been, he was president for two terms, and then before that, he had, we had the Bushes in. It had to be 15, 16 years ago at the Democratic uh, 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 Convention. I remember that he was, just a very, uh, he was just a very young senator at the time. And uh, they had him speak at the National Convention. And I remember his speech, and I remember afterwards everybody thought that his star was only going to rise and someday that he was going to be um, the man to be president and be their guy that they wanted to put in. I think it's a lot like that with the Antichrist. I think he's underneath the surface, but going to be a rising star within his own party. And I think that he'll be somebody like that who you get a glimpse of on the radar, but then you don't. And he'll do something, and everybody will say, wow, boy, is he going to go places. And then he, you don't miss him. He's off the radar. And then at some point, just like Barack Obama, one day he's going to be president of the United States, and the next day he is. It's something like that, I would think. Uh, he's going to have to be connected to Rome. No question about that. Uh, he's going to have to be political. There's no question about that. To me, it's just how far this thing is going to go before it gets to the point where it almost breaks. 
uh, you know, when you look at not just America, but certainly America, but when you look at the world stage as it exists today, there are so many problems around the world in America that where would you even begin to solve them? America as the world is looking for somebody to be able to solve those. The arrogancy of man, uh, Trump thinks he's the guy to do it. Putin thinks he's the guy to do it. The little fat Pelberry Doughboy over in North Korea, he thinks he's going to do it. Uh, every little dictator out there, uh, you know, thinks that he's the guy to do it. And truth of the matter is, none of them can do it. It's way beyond uh, the scope of one man. And so it's going to take uh, the earth, the world, getting to a dire strait where the whole world will accept anybody who has the ability to fix our problems. And that'll be the Antichrist. And of course, the rapture of the church is going to take place. We're going to be gone. All that will be left will be the derivatives of Rome and Rome itself and all the myriads of unsaved people who don't believe anything. Bible says there, we didn't go on down through there, but the Bible says that he's going to send strong delusion that everybody that's left believes a lie. They're going to believe into him. And so it'll be an easy thing because all of the, all the evangelical churches have already fallen into the concept there's no rapture. So they've already, most of them are already uh, amillennial or postmillennial. Uh, they don't believe in a pre-trib uh, anymore, because if you don't believe the rapture, you can't be pre-tribulation. So the ones that are left are going to be the ones who right now are teaching the doctrine that lines up with the Antichrist coming, not the first coming, not the second coming of Christ coming. So he's going to fight a whole world that the religions of the world right now, Protestant religions, are setting up for him. And once we're gone and the Holy Spirit of God is taken out, there's no truth anymore. There's no guidance of truth anymore. Now you're in trouble. So, you know, to what extent he is connected to the Roman Catholic Church, I think probably he'll be interconnected, uh, either by being a Roman Catholic. But you've got to remember the greatest type of the Antichrist in the 20th century was Adolf Hitler. Now, he was a Roman Catholic, but he had nothing to do with the church. But yet the church backed him because he, he did for the church what the church needed to have done. That was to fight communism. So there's a lot of scenarios it could go with. It's hard at this point to tell you exactly how it'll happen. Um, it's just as simple that it may be nobody on this planet that can do it. And if we go back to Genesis chapter 6, and that's a a viable thing, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall be coming in the sons of man. Uh, he may just come down on a UFO and as life from another planet. And uh, when he shows up down here, recognize the fact that he had visited this, pull all the, all the religions together, you know, some out there in Washington, D.C., you know, or out someplace in the central world. I would say Washington now because America's the foremost power, you know, and boy, for all of a sudden, they... The Norick, Norick and all of those places go crazy and, the, and there's this UFO out in the 
coming in from past the moon and they got it on radar and, and it's something that nobody ever panic and everybody's afraid and it's coming, you know, and the radar is going off, the Air Force is alerted, the whole world is upside down by itself, you know, and that thing keeps coming and coming and it's coming now into the Earth's atmosphere and everybody, and now looks like it's headed for Washington and it's coming there, you know, everybody's panicking, everybody's afraid, the military's alerted, jets are flying and there it comes over Washington, that big silver disc uh, the size of, you know, uh, the stadium and it's just humming and glowing and come down there and lands right in the middle of that thing, you know, and for two, no, 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 for three days, <laughs> nothing. Then on the third day, that little door opens up and out comes this guy, tall, shiny, looks like Conway Twitty, comes down there, you know, and <laughs> all the world is watching ABC, CB, Fox News, everybody. Armies are all around that thing, and he walks down there, and he, peace. And then he says, we've watched your planet for hundreds of years. We've watched you develop. We've watched you evolve into what you are today. We have visited your planet many times without your knowing. This is what we do to the vast planet's out of the universe. We visited your planet in Muhammad. We visited your planet in this guy. We visited your planet in Jesus Christ. And now we have come to bring you the secrets of everything that we have learned. You no longer are Russians and Americans and Chinese. Your neighborhood just got a lot larger. Now you're part of a galactic family, and you're all earthlings. And I have come here to give you the secret to solve your problem. You have done as much as you could do to establish a kingdom of peace. We have the secret to that peace. And I come to you today to bring you that peace. What would the world do? From that point on, two cars in every garage, two chickens in every pot. <laughs> Sign up right here or right here. Let's get rid of the ones that don't want to be part of this system. Oh, yeah. Something like that. Yeah, you'd almost think it would have to be like that just because of the fact that Judas, he couldn't come in as a baby again. You know, he would have to have almost like some type of a birth record deficiency, like where people are like, where did this guy come from? So it almost seems like he would have to come in. And I'll tell you something else, too, and I've told you this before. There were literally very few recorded UFO sightings. I mean, you have records of it, but very few. Uh, but in 1947... Uh, you find the first actual kickoff, what I call it, of the UFOs out on there in Washington State and Mount Rainier. And um, to me, I, I look at that as, as a setup of, of everything that's happening because in 1948, the nation of Israel becomes a nation. And uh, if history is a four-speed transmission, um, in 1948, uh, the devil just put it in fourth gear and stepped on the gas. And um, from that point on, 
um, from 1947, right before she becomes a nation, to this point, there's been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of sightings. And of course, the, the key is Roswell. Uh, the other key is Framingham in England at the Air Force Base there. Um, I think that the, it's all been a setup. I think that along with that, you have every movie, every other movie coming out has now been a science fiction movie about life in outer space that has gotten everybody brainwashed to the fact that there is life in outer space. And one of these days, the life of outer space will show up. And uh, you, got, you got 50 million million dollars being spent every year in the SETI program where some guy is sitting down there at a radio telescope and he is, he is uh, sending signals out hoping somebody will send it back. By the way, the largest radio telescope in our lives, private observatory that is doing that is in the Vatican, run by the Jesuits. And I would think at first contact will probably come there. And so it's all set up. It's all set up. So, Well, we'll hold up there. <clears throat>